Radio advertising is good. Why should you advertise on the Tam Talk Radio Network, AM 1340? Well, it's simple. We are a local radio station with local shows that target our local communities and local listeners. We have a variety of shows that cover a multitude of informative and interesting topics, such as automotive and boating, real estate and finance, health and medical, politics and law, sports and fishing, pet care, and more. Why, we are even home to Imus in the Morning. We also have shows about comedy, food and dining, religion, fashion, local community events and activities and a variety of music. Talk radio provides a listening format that appeals to a large cross-section of people. Whether you are in your car, at work, at home, everyone has a radio. And we are streamed live on the Internet. And past shows are podcasted so you, the listener, can play back your favorite shows over and over again. The possibilities are endless. So that, my listeners, is why you should advertise on the Tam Talk Radio Network, AM 1340. Hey listeners, this is Robert from Nostalgic Radio and Cars. Let me tell you about my company, Gulfstream Motorsports, Inc. 727-541-1741. I have over 35 years' experience with classic, vintage, sport, and racing cars. I do appraisals, consulting, and pre-purchase inspections. Before you buy your next rare classic, the car of your dreams, give me a call at Gulfstream Motorsports, Inc. 727-541-1741. Also, due to my 28 years' experience in the auto salvage business, I am very good with wrecks. So if your car has been in a wreck, call me for a diminished value report. Call me at 727-541-1741. You may be owed some money for lost value of your repaired vehicle. That's Gulfstream Motorsports, Inc., 727-541-1741. And be sure to tune in to Nostalgic Radio and Cars, Wednesdays, 7 to 8 p.m. on the Tantalk Radio Network, AM 1340. If you like golf, enjoy affordable golf at Magnolia Valley Golf Club, located on Massachusetts Avenue in Newport Ritchie. Play for as little as $15 after 2 p.m. The club has two beautiful courses to choose from, an 18-hole championship par 72 plus another nine-hole executive par 33. Join their open leagues on Wednesday afternoons at 4 and Sunday mornings at 8. Call 727-847-2342 for tee times or visit their website, magnoliavalleygolfclub.com. most complex thing I've ever done because it's physically involved, you're mentally involved, it's very hot in the car, uh, there's a lot of G-forces that are on your neck, on your upper body, you're strapped in, uh, so you can't move, but yet all these G-forces are transferred to you, so it's tough in there, I mean, you are working real hard. Before the race, um, I really go through a detuning, uh, where I start tuning everything else out, and you're preparing yourself for what, in fact, you want to accomplish out there. And it's amazing if you really focus and concentrate on something, how much better your performance will be. racer that shows up in a racetrack wants to win. Even if they start 30th on the grid in their heart, they think they can win that race. So you really need to have that feeling. And if you don't, then you need to analyze what you're doing. If you don't have a plan, when you're ready to go into action, then 
you're just shooting from the hip the whole time. You're reacting instead of taking action. Well, you can have the best plan of attack and have your strategies all worked out, and then there's going to be guaranteed something that's going to interrupt that plan. 1986, I had the worst crash in the history of the speedway, uh, Riverside National Raceway, and they said possibly the worst crash that year. And it was a three-car collision that I had absolutely, I mean, I was a victim of circumstance. I came out really pretty good. I ended up with two cracked ribs, a lot of bruises, and a couple of discs. And I was back in a race car a week later. I was taped up and not feeling too good, but I was back in a race car. I think sometimes adversity, through adversities come breakthroughs. requires a tremendous amount of persistence, a tremendous amount of, of patience, and a tremendous amount of, of repetition when you go out and you do it again and again and again and again. If you believe what you're doing and, and have a conviction about it and believe in yourself and have a passion about it, that's going to be, that message is going to be transferred to other people. People are going to catch the fever. is brought to you in living color on NBC. Okay, listeners, hey there, hi there, ho there. You are tuned in to Nostalgic Radio and Cars. I'm your host, Robert. So... As usual, I'm going to be your uh, your host for the evening. How about that? Hey, Cedric, how you doing? I'm good, man. How's it going? Pretty good. Hey, we got a great show tonight. We got a super guest tonight. We have the famous, well known lady race car driver. But I'll, I'll I'll let everybody. I'll keep everybody. If I'll keep everybody in suspense for a while before I introduce her. Although, if you caught the uh, audio here shortly ago, uh, you'd figure out who she was. But at any rate, um, run your computers. Google Tantalk1340.com and flip that little switch, and you can see us live here in the studio. So, anyway, we got the first song fired up. It's ready to go. Let's let it roll.
This is Robert from Nostalgic Radio and Cars. We all love to eat. Well, I would like to tell you about my friends at the Rib Shack Barbecue on West Bay Drive in downtown Largo. Their menu offers family-sized takeout dinners like delicious ribs, chicken, beef, and pork, or sit-down barbecue dinners, sandwiches, and even desserts. They will also cater your party. Everything is barbecued fresh using real oak for that great smoky flavor. So visit my friends, Corey, Jed, and Kirk at the Rib Shack Barbecue in downtown Largo, 600 West Bay Drive, or call them for a takeout order at 727-501-9090. That's 727-501-9090. They truly have the best smoking barbecue in town. Oh, and be sure and check out their great barbecue sauce. That's the Rib Shack Barbecue in downtown Largo, 727-501-9090. I'm telling Robert from Nostalgic Radio and Car sent you. Hey listeners, this is Robert from Nostalgic Radiant Cars. I'd like to tell you about a great place to eat right on the main part of Clearwater Beach. Located at 333 South Gulfview Boulevard. Crabby's Beachwalk Bar and Grill has two floors of food, drink, and fun. They have daily specials, happy hour, and nightly entertainment. Their menu caters to seafood lovers as well as land lovers. Crabby's Beachwalk Bar and Grill, 727-608-2065. They're open in the morning for breakfast until 1 a.m. So stop by and visit my friends, Turtle, Eddie, and Polly, and all the girls and staff at Crabby's Beachwalk Bar and Grill. That's 727-608-2065. Mention Nostalgic Radio and Cars, and you never know, you might get a free drink. That's Crabby's Beachwalk Bar and Grill on Clearwater Beach, 727-608-2065. Okay, listeners, we're back, and you're tuned into Nostalgic Radio and Cars. I'm your host, Robert, and we, as usual, have a good show. We play a couple cool vintage 60s, 70s songs, and we play a couple, eh, some occasionally some commercials, some movie clips, some vintage stuff. And uh, a lot of the, a lot of the uh, clips that we play in the songs are usually at the request of the special guests for the evening, because uh, I, I, I give them an opportunity to kind of feel at home, play, play something that makes them feel comfortable. But nonetheless, hey, let's get on a couple uh, updates here. Uh, don't forget, tonight is Open Mic Night at Naughty Nancy's. Naughty Nancy's is located right behind the studio here on Eldred Street, on the a quarter mile north of the Drew Street, off Myrtle Avenue, on the trail. Okay, number is 446-3717, Open Mic Night. And Crabby's Beachwalk Bar and Grill, one of my favorite hangouts, also has Open Mic Night on Wednesday. So if you're stumbling around in Clearwater Beach, be sure and check out Crabby's Beachwalk Bar and Grill. Say hi to Stephanie and Polly and all the guys down there and girls and check them out. And go down there, either or, just go to Nutty Nancy's or Krabby's uh, Beach Walk and bring your little instruments and have fun. Hey, Sad, you know what I did today? Today I had to run to Sarasota. I had to go get a motor for a guy. Okay. Interesting story. 
And uh, I so I get down there, and no no offense to the guy or anything like that, but uh, you know sometimes people aren't real knowledgeable. There's a lot of guys out there, and I caution everybody. There's a lot of guys that are car guys, and what happens is. They have a checkbook, they buy some cars, they buy maybe some spare parts because they don't know any better, and then ultimately what happens is they got a lot of nothing. So anyway, I went to go pick up this motor. It turned out it was supposed to be, or I'm not sure what it turned out to be because we didn't dissect the motor, but nonetheless, it was supposed to be a 409, a 64 motor, a QQ code. So it was a 340, 340 horse 1964 motor, which we needed for a customer for a specific application. So I get there, the motor's all ready to go, Looks dingy, just like something that came out of my old junkyard, in mm-hmm. fact. And uh, so I said, well, okay, looks good. Pull the valve cover off. It was loose. And uh, guess what? It looked really nasty. So I said, well, does the motor turn over? He goes, well, yeah. At least that's what they told us on the phone. So I said, well, let's check it out. Before I do anything, let's just see if the motor turns over. We put that thing down on the ground, dropped it on the skids. I took a breaker bar, a three-foot screwdriver slash breaker bar, whatever, cranked that thing on the uh, flywheel, hooked on the flywheel, and then a little notch, a little pegs on the back of the engine block where the bell housings line up. That thing wouldn't move. I could not budge it. And I put my weight on I weighed about 170, 175, something like that. And uh, that's wet, by the way. Anyway, um, so <laughs> uh, I couldn't budge it. So I went to the other side, tried to do it the other way. Couldn't get it to do anything. So as a result, we had a dull time so here i am standing around in sarasota got nothing to do so i have to hurry up and get ready for the radio show and stuff like that but i didn't want to hurry back so i figured well i'll take a little time and go check out some places so what i did is i went by my buddy over there i haven't seen him in a while but martin gobby runs a place in sarasota called vintage motorsport or actually vintage motor cars of sarasota so check out his website vintage motor cars of sarasota.com and i just happened to run into my other friend chris okay sonus who's putting on the collector or the Crown Collector Car Auction this fall, okay, in October, October 14th and 15th. And you've heard me advertise this a few times because Chris is putting together a really, really cool auction. And guess what? Yours truly will be announcing there, okay? So if you've ever seen those guys at Barrett-Jackson and the Mecham Auctions, they run around the car and they talk about the car and they talk about features and highlights and stuff like that, that will be me. So you certainly don't want to miss that, okay? Um, at any rate, so here we are. The three of us are standing there at uh, Martin Gobby's place. Now, Martin also has the... Uh, Car Museum. Let's see what that's called. It's called the Classic Car Museum of Sarasota, or Sarasota Classic Car Museum. So if you've never been there, they've got an amazing collection of cars. It's nice. It's neat. It's organized. They've got stuff from the 30s, 40s, 50s, 60s. Actually, they have some real early stuff, too. They've got some mid-teens stuff there. So uh, check it out. It's open daily. The phone number down there is 941-355-6228. That's 941-355-6228. That's the Sarasota Classic Car Museum. Okay, Martin, that one's for you. Martin has got some amazing cars. Chris from Crown Collector Car Auctions. Don't forget that. I'm going to say it again. Crown Collector Car Auctions. If you need to get a hold of Chris and you want to consign some cars, that's October 14th and 15th. It's the same weekend as the as the uh, Street Rod Nationals at the Tampa Fairgrounds. Give Chris a call. Consign a car. Check out his inventory. Check out his website. 855-552-7696. That's 855-552-7696. He has got some really cool stuff. But anyway, while we're there at uh, Martin's uh, place, we were looking at a stunning 1940 Packard's uh, coupe. Beautiful, beautiful car. He had a gorgeous 53 Buick Skylark convertible. Absolutely gorgeous car. Real pretty metallic blue with the corresponding interior. Had a gorgeous 54 Buick convertible. Had a stunning 67 for all you Chevy guys. Factory 396 four-speed loaded bucket seat console factory tack air conditioned with the rare optional headrests and a number of other options. A big block 
uh, convertible Chevelle, factory black, black, black car. What an amazing car. And also in the back, if you guys are really motivated to do some, uh, take on a real project, he had a 19, a late 50s, uh, AC Asika Coupe. And AC, of course, is the original, or the basis that the AC Cobra is on, hence AC, AC Cobra. But they did make little AC bristles and they made an AC Asika Coupe, which was kind of a cool little racing car. But anyway, this is a full aluminum body. It's a, a real live barn find. It's kind of a cool piece. But anyway, you can give Martin at, uh, Vintage Motor Cars of Sarasota a call. Give him a call at 941-355-6500. That's 941-355. 6,500. Amazing collection of cars. He had a beautiful Jaguar E-Type, a 63 uh, Roadster down there. He had a really nice 56 Thunderbird, 55 Thunderbird. He had uh, a 1930-something Cadillac. I mean, this thing looked like some real gangster job. Really wicked. He had some old vintage 20s Rolls Royces. I mean, there's just an amazing variety of cars down there. In excellent, excellent condition. I mean, really nicely restored cars. Today, it probably costs, if you, if, if, if you want to kind of calculate what it costs roughly to do a car, if you figure on an average to do a car, most shops will charge you between $50 and $55, some cases $75 an hour. But let's just take $50 an hour. It takes on an average to 100% assemble, 100% reassemble a car about 800 to 1,000 hours, in some cases 12 to 1,400 hours. So do the math on that. So you're going to have fifty to $75,000 in restoration, a true restoration, then you got to factor in the cost of the parts, the cost of the car, and the cost of the materials. So, you know, on an average, you're gonna, for for a nice car, you're going to spend a hundred grand. So make sure that if you do restore, operative word, restore a car, you're going to have the right car to restore that has the value. Okay, they've got to be rare, they've got to be unusual. Um, your average cars that you see at most of the car shows, at most of the used car lots around here. For example, let's say uh, I'm not going to mention any names, okay? Because I don't want to step on any feet. But there are friends of mine. You got Golden Classics in town. You got PJs. You got a couple places down in St. Pete. You got uh, our friends Stewie and Jimmy up there at uh, what's it called Corvette and Collectibles up in Tarpon Springs. Most of those cars are not restored, contrary to what everybody likes to believe and wants to believe. They are not restored. They are reconditioned, refurbished cars. Okay, again, a restored car, 100% disassemble, 100% reassemble. If you just kind of fix it up, paint it, do some minor pulse work minor mechanicals that's reconditioning a car and th- and that's realistic and that's affordable most of the cars that you see at the car show on a scale of one to ten ten something that sits on the back of my rollback and goes to a junkyard and i turn into parts one being a perfect car something you might see at meadowbrook which is in two weeks in detroit or amelia island which is in the spring or in pebble beach which is in two weeks in california those are perfect 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 cars unobtainable very expensive the average guy that buys a car and drives it to a car show is between a number three, a week three, and a strong four, and a five. So at any rate, hey, looks like we got a caller on the line. Let's, uh, before we introduce our guest, let's go to that song. What's on next on our agenda here?
Hey listeners, this is Robert from Nostalgic Radio and Cars. I'd like to tell you about a great pizza shop right here in downtown Clearwater, Bro's Pizzeria, voted number one in the city of Clearwater. They're located at 547 South Fort Harrison Avenue. They have great New York-style pizza, as well as delicious lasagna, spaghetti and meatballs, manicotti, linguine. And if you're in the neighborhood for lunch, they have great hot and cold sandwiches and appetizers. So call 727-441-6025 for takeout and deliveries, or stop by for a veal parmesan dinner and a nice glass of vino. That's Bro's Pizzeria. Check out their website and watch my friend Olti create a spectacular pizza before your very eyes. What would you like on your pizza? Call Bro's Pizzeria, 727-441-6025. That's 727-441-6025. And tell them Robert from Nostalgic Radio and Cars sent you. Hey listeners, this is Robert from Nostalgic Radio and Cars. As most of you know, I'm in the car business, and often I need cars towed. Well, Kotakis Towing has all the trucks and equipment to meet your needs. Whether it's long distance, short distance, or just around the corner, they can get it done. Kotakis Towing, located at 1141 Court Street in Clearwater. Also, they have a full-service repair and body shop to meet all your automotive needs. So give my friends Lefty and Joey a call at Kotakis Towing at 727-447-1952. And be sure and mention Nostalgic Radio and Cars, and you might get a discount. Some organic fuel. Take a car wash, hippie. Look, I'm Lightning McQueen, the famous race car. I love you, Lightning! I'm a precision instrument with speed and aerodynamics. You hurt your what? <laughs> I know his type. Race car. I don't mean to be rude here, but you probably go zero to 60 in like, what, 3.5 years? Oh. oh. Time you cared about something except for yourself, Hot Rod. Don't you big city race cars ever just take a drop? Oh, you can't hit to this time it's here. Holy Porsche. Hey, do I spot a little pinstriping tattoo back there? Oh, you saw that? Well, how does a portion wind up in a place like this? I fell in love. Oh, Corvette. Hey there, Mater. You know her? She's my fiancée. What? Nah, I'm just kidding. She just likes me for my body. Okay, guys, you're tuned in, and we're back. This is Nostalgic Radio and Cars, and it's time to introduce our special guest for the evening. Let me tell you a little bit about her. She's been racing. It's a she. Yes, ladies and gentlemen, boys and girls, it is a she. It is a lady race car driver. She's been racing cars since 1973. Started out in SCCA. Then she wound up in IMSA. Then she won, well, actually won. She raced in Indy a number of years. And in 1992, she was the Indy, the first lady uh, rookie of the year in 1992. So without further ado, it gives me great pleasure to introduce and welcome to the show this evening, Lynn St. James. Hey there. How you doing, Lynn? I'm doing great. Let's clap for Lynn. Okay, welcome to the show. How you doing? I enjoyed enjoyed listening to Chris Wright of Daytona. 
Yeah, well, we played that. That was one of your songs that you requested, and I, uh, I, I know. I played an earlier one from. It's called, I think, something summer. What's that? So, hey, Sadie, what was the name of the first song we played from Chris Ria? Uh, looking for summer. Looking for summer. I thought looking that was for summer. I didn't hear that one, but that's fabulous too. And All then, of this stuff. <laughs> and then, of course, cars because you like the movie Cars. So we played that little that the, the trailer oh, for it. Okay. So anyway, so tell us a little bit. Tell everybody on the planet, because this is live radio, and it's streamed live on the Internet. So the whole world is listening right now. And tell everybody how you got involved in cars and uh, what uh, what created your fascination with the sport. Well, I grew up in the 60s, you know, the muscle car era. And if you weren't into cars, I don't even think you were on this planet in, in that time frame. So, And I... You know, I had a bunch of buddies that took me to the drag races and did a little drag, you know, a little street drag racing and, and, you know, just loved cars. I don't know. It just sort of happened. And they, you know, got my driver's license pretty early and kind of got myself in trouble a little bit. So my mom, I won my first drag race and my mom, I came home with this trophy and she said, you know, you're not doing this anymore. So it kind of came to a halt. And it wasn't until I moved to Florida that I found out about road racing and SCCA. And, you know, I was older now and where my mom and dad didn't tell me what I could or could do. And uh, and I decided that, you know, that was what I wanted to do for the rest of my life. I mean, you know, I found out I tried to work out a corner for a while and, you know, volunteer. And I thought, you know, the people having the most fun at a racetrack are the drivers. And that's really what I love. And so... I went out and bought a Ford Pinto at uh, Lou Fulton Ford in Fort Lauderdale. We had to order it with uh, no air conditioning, even though I lived in Fort Lauderdale. And no. uh, put a roll bar in it, the 5 point belt, the 5-pound fire extinguisher, and went racing. Well, didn't know. Well, let me ask you a question now. So you started out drag racing, which means you could have been a Cha-Cha Muldani. Is it Cha-Cha Muldani? Is that it? Okay, so you yeah, could have been Shirley, a Shirley. Muldani, yeah, who was known as Cha-Cha. Yeah, she... She was probably in that. She was in that same era. She had not won her world championships yet, but I had not heard of her at that time. I mean, I grew up in Ohio, so but it was a really short summer window that I did the drag racing. And as I said, my mom was not pleased, and I was still in school, and so it came to a very big halt. Oh. I, you know, I thought about drag racing, but what I didn't really like about it is you wait in line and you wait in line and you wait in line. Yeah, and we then know. <laughs> you get a and, and even if you win, it's like it's over. And well, in that case, I was running street cars. It's like ten, you know, nine or ten seconds. But then you have to wait for hours again before you get to go again. And I just, I just wasn't my deal, you know. I mean, I loved it, but it. I, well, mean, I, I was told I couldn't, so it really didn't matter. Let me ask you a question: Did you drive a stick shift, or were you an automatic? Oh, okay, good oh, girl. Yeah, no, no, no. I had a. My friends had a GTO. It was a. All right. You know, it was good. Really a stick shift, and then I just remember, you know, working the clutch from the the whole thing, and then I my first car was a 1967, I think Pontiac Catalina two plus two, which I also special ordered uh, with uh, the big engine and all the heavy duty stuff, and you know, four speed and really, really. Yeah. A, f- a four-speed this Catalina. Is not a this is not a young woman's car. I said, well, it's the car I want. So I got my job, and I want my car. <laughs> no kidding. Well, hell, my hat's off to you. That's a good girl. So let me ask you a question. When you got the Miami down there, or the Fort Lauderdale area, and you and you bought your mighty Pino, and I have to kind of go, I like Pinos, because I actually had a Pino wagon myself for a number of years. But anyway, did you go race up? What would you race? Moroso? Yeah, that was my home track. Um, I mean, I went to driver school in Lakeland and um, and then at Moroso. And in fact, Bob Lee recently called me. He's still a member of SCCA and told me that he still has that Pinto. It runs in IT right now. So, wait a minute. uh, Was there was there? Palm Beach International Raceway was my uh, home track. Was uh, was there a guy? Do you remember Racer Brown out of the sixties and seventies? I think he was off the East Coast there, someplace over in the Cape Canaveral area. 
No, I don't know him. Thank you, but I, I, I'm better walking. Oh. No, I, 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 sorry, they just offered me a seat, and I said, no, I'm all right, I'm walking. Oh, that's right. You're, um, tell, everybody, tell, us, tell everybody where you're at. You're up in Indy right oh, now, yeah. right? I'm in Indianapolis, and I'm at this really, really, really historical racetrack called the Speedrome, uh, which is just outside of Indianapolis. 70 years. 70 years you, they've been here, and I'm watching one of our young drivers, Taylor Ferns, who unfortunately I can't watch right now because I'm talking to you. Okay. And uh, But she's running in the USAC uh, Midgets, and she's leading the points championship in the USAC Series right now. And so I'm out here watching, and, you know, yeah. Okay, well, hey, uh, back to back to Moroso now. When you went and took your driving school in Lakeland, where? I mean, I remember Lakeland International Raceway in the 70s. You didn't go there to go to school, did you? Yeah, I did. It, I went to driving school in 73, and there was a track there where it was kind of tied. It was a what I would now call a Mickey Mouse road course that was tied around where the drag strip was. Oh, no kidding. Well, we used to have autocrosses there back in the 70s because that's where I started in 75. But we didn't, they didn't, I didn't know they had a driving school then. Yeah, well, it was an SCCA school. I mean, it, you know, that was just a track that the central region of SCCA. I was a member of the Florida region, which was in Miami. But no kidding. But I would, yeah, Daytona, Sebring, and uh, well, no, Sebring. I don't even think we could do schools yet there. But it was Daytona and Lakeland and Marosa, which was then PDIR. Oh, I'll be darned. So anyway, so then uh, how did you get in? After you did the, the SCCA stuff, you did that for a while. Then how did you get into your next step? Was what somehow you got into IMSA or something like that? Or what's the evolution? Well, that's not how I get no. I mean, no? I ran SCCA on my own money for I think about seven years. I was Florida Regional Champion and, and Showroom Stock, and then I moved up to Showroom Stock A with my Cosworth Vega, and then they finally <laughs> made Showroom Stock an eligible because it was my street car as well. I drove it back and forth to work during the week and raced it on weekends. There you and then go. they finally made it eligible for the national championship, um, and I uh, qualified second in the South Florida region or whatever it was called in the Southeast Division. And I was, in, and then I went to Road Atlanta to the runoff, which was a big dream to become a national champion, which I've never accomplished. Um, I blew my engine in qualifying, qualified thirteenth, and never got to run there. And then I, you know, I realized that this is what I wanted to do with my life. I mean, it was more important than just about anything else, and so. That's when I started to try to get sponsors, and it took me about four years. From, it was 1978 when I was in Atlanta, and then um, I kept running on my own. And then in uh, 1981, after writing letters to Ford Motor Company for about three years, I finally got signed by them because I ran in the Kelly American Challenge Series in IMSA first. I remember that. So, mm-hmm. Yeah, and so that in 1979, I made history when I finished second of 79 hundreds of a second behind Gene Felton. Oh, geez. An old Plymouth Valari, and um, and I ran that whole season that year. And they had a they had an award for the top woman driver because it was Kelly. It was that time it was Kelly Girl, and they made it Kelly Services. So, um, but anyway, that kind of started the. You know, you start getting big dreams and big ideas about sure. what you want to do, and you think you could figure out how to do it, and it doesn't always work out. But after a lot of hard work and hard racing, and I was I was fortunate enough to get Ford Motor Company as a sponsor in 1981. Good girl. But you actually came in just second behind Gene Felton. I know Gene. Gene's a hell of a driver. You know? a, he is. And, and yeah, I, it was like I, I qualified, I think, like, I don't know, 11th or 13th or something like that. And, and um, you know, everybody thought, what the heck are you even doing here? You know, it was the old Plymouth Valari that the Whittingtons, when they bought Road Atlanta, they, they found this race car in, in one of the sheds. And it was this old Plymouth Valari, and this guy out of Texas, Brant Dole, decided to buy it and then put it together to run that first race. And 
So we wanted a woman driver because they had a bonus of $1,500 for the top female driver. And I had been running, you know, a little bit in a Corvette in IMSA. And, uh, and so they gave him my number. And it's the only time in my entire career that a team owner ever or car owner ever called me. Wow. Every other ride I've ever gotten has been because I've chased it down. Amazing, amazing. So then when did you get into Trans Am? You did some Trans Am stuff there, too, for a while, right? Yeah, well, I got Ford as a sponsor in 1981, and that was in the IMSA Kelly American Challenge Series. And I did that for a year. I tried to do that with my own team, and it, it was not going well. And so Ford said, look, at, you know, you're trying to run the team as well as drive the car, and we don't think that's a particularly good idea. So they then moved me in the next year because I had only one-year contracts, but they moved me the next year into Trans Am with Tom Gloy um, as the team mate. And so it was Ford that made the decision. Wow. All right, so back then you were racing against, uh, I guess Borsed was racing Trans Am, Fellows was racing Trans Am. Um, I'm trying to think of a couple other guys. Hurley um, Haywood when they had the Audis, and Hurley, they had yeah. Lily T. Ribs and David Hobbs and the Camaros and all kinds of good guys. Wow. So you have a you have an interesting roster of uh, drivers that you you competed against, and that is amazing. I still can't get over the fact that you came in second to Gene Felton. You know, had he not had that <laughs> accident, passed him on the back straightaway at Road Atlanta before the dip. Are you and serious? Before then turn eleven, he got me. He got me, and it was literally a, not a photo finish, but seventy nine hundred to the second in month. That's his home track, Road Atlanta. I know. Yeah. I know. Wow. Well, that's that's where, that's where I went to driving school in 1990. I got my license up there. And uh, Road Atlanta is one of my favorite tracks. But yep. anyway. Yeah. So I haven't run it since they made all the changes, but it's, it's an awesome track. Wow. Interesting. Small world. Okay, so then uh, when, when after Trans Am, then how did you get into a little bit more? Uh, you were doing some GTP cars, right, in IMSA? Well, that, yeah, I really wanted to drive the prototypes. I mean, you know, when you're... You know, when you're a race car driver, you want to drive the best race car you can get in as far as, you know, technology. And Ford was obviously, that was their primo program at that time. This was about 84 or so. And and quite frankly, even though sedans are really pretty cool to drive, I mean, they're pretty cool to watch race, but they aren't the coolest thing to drive. I mean, they're heavy and they don't break. It's a lot of weight in the front. And, you know, it, 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 was, it was cool, but I could see that the prototypes were a lot cooler. And so, and that was Ford's primary program. So... I was not successful at first, but I was able to get into a Argo with a Cosworth uh, engine. And again, uh, that was kind of a new class that IMSA was starting to look at um, as a possibility. And they called it it's the following year. They did stay with it. They called it Camelite. But but we ran against the big all the big prototypes, and I did really well. I mean, we beat the probe a few times and. Uh, and I then convinced Ford and Goodyear to take one of the probes to uh, Talladega to set some records to show them, speed records, to show them I could drive that car. And I had trained really hard physically, and and I just spent a lot of time learning about those cars so that when I got that opportunity, I did well. And so they then, in 1985, signed me to drive the, um, the probe. Or 1986 is when I drove the probe. Now, just out of curiosity, and I'm a Ford guy, so you know I can appreciate it. But what made you go to Ford as opposed to, let's say, General Motors or Chrysler or somebody else? I went Mazda. to all of them. Oh, you did? Yeah, I went to all of them. But um, Ford, I had read an article in Car and Driver magazine that was titled "Ford and Feminism." It was a little sidebar about the Mercury Capri in Car and Driver, 
and it talked about Ford Motor Company's um, interest in providing equal opportunity, employment opportunities for females in non-traditional areas, um, and they're obviously wanted to sell cars to women as well. So I wrote letters to the people that were quoted in that article, and but I, I figured if Ford cared, so I would go to GM and so to Chrysler. So I wrote to everybody. And everybody said no, including Ford. Um, but they said, keep us in, you know, like informed of your progress. So while I was still racing in SCCA on my own stuff, um, I continued to send my results and I'd get little articles in the Fort Lauderdale paper or someplace wherever I was. And I, you know, I just bugged the heck out of them, basically. Wow. Now, what, uh, while all this was going on, you were racing and you were basically funding your own uh, little racing program. What was your career at that time? Well, I was married, and we had an auto parts company as well as a consumer electronics company, and my husband raced a Corvette. Oh, no kidding. So, yeah, so we were kind of the husband and wife race team. He had the Corvette in deproduction, um, and I had the, the Sherwin stock car, and so that was, you know, and, but, you know, you only could sell so many shock absorbers, and you, I mean, we just didn't have a lot of money. We just had enough money to, to get the cars to the track and do a decent job. I see. Okay, so in the, what year Corvette was he racing back in those days? Well, he bought an old clapped-out Corvette. I don't even remember what year it was. <laughs> I mean, it was in 73. Okay. So it was probably, a, I don't know, it's late 60s or something. The car, like, broke down on our test drive. It was a used car. It didn't matter because all he wanted was basically the shell. And then, you know, he basically gutted it anyway and then put a uh, roll bar in it and, and built it as a big production car. And he, he went to the runoffs in that in, in I think, in around 76 or so and did really well. But you were just more determined than he was, right? That's why you well, pursued it. Yeah, it was tough. I mean, when you you know, I was doing it for fun, and then so was he. But we both were got very serious about it, as you have to be in racing. And um, we were both successful in our various categories, but you know, the budget was starting to really uh, pinch us, and it became obvious that I, one of us, had to turn professional, and he owned the business, and you know, I was a partner, but it was. I, I made the decision that I was the one that was going to try to go professional and get corporate sponsorship, and um, which neither one of us probably, I mean, I never admitted I didn't think it would happen, but, you know, well, and, no. and it, eventually it happened. I mean, it literally took me three years to get Ford, and then, unfortunately, by then I was also divorced. So. Oh. Well, anyway, all right, let's go forward to, uh, so following the GTP races now, in 86, you had... A little bit of a mishap at Riverside. What exactly happened there, and how did that happen? Well, it was pretty pretty simple. I mean, it was a six-hour race, and I we just done a driver change. We were like second hour into a six-hour race, and Pete Holzman was my co-driver, and and you know I had a full load of fuel. It was, we were lucky to be able to pit under yellow, and we were did a couple laps under yellow, and then the track went green, and and um, you know I was right next to Chip Robinson, and we were staying and trying to go through the first turn there. Sanely, and Doc Bundy was on a different wavelength. They had they'd been oh. in the pits a long time, and uh, and we're, I don't know how many laps down. I mean, a bunch of laps down, and they had a light load of fuel, and Doc decided, I think, if he came off of that turn nine going into one, that he could maybe get get a, you know get his, because I think Chip was first, but I'm in second, and he thought he could probably get a lap back, and he made a bonsai stupid move and tried to pass <laughs> both of us turn one and took all three of us out. Wow, now your car basically spun over and burst into flames, right? Or was it whose car yeah. was that? Yeah, mine was the one that, because chips almost went into the stands, you know, where that stands to where the, the motorhomes people were lined up behind a fence, and and mine hit the 
pit wall and ran along the top of the pit wall upside down and then landed upside down on the pavement and spun and burst into flames. Yeah. Okay. Well, let me ask you a question. Now, that just goes to, and you only you only had some, what, minor, a couple broken ribs and some minor bruises, right? Yeah, well, I had ended up with a herniated disc, but, you know, I didn't know that for a while. But um, I was very fortunate. I mean, I walked away, and, you know, I understand that it's on YouTube. A lot of people continue yes. to talk about it, so... Yes, I just uh, looked it up a little earlier this evening. But anyway, all right, yeah. that brings an important question. Now, you ha- you as a woman have to be, you know, people th- don't think of car drivers, racing car guys, as athletes. But you really have to be fit. Tell us what kind of conditioning process you went through. Had you not done that, for example, uh, been as fit as you were, you might have sustained more damage or more injuries, correct? Yeah, but I couldn't have even driven the car, to be honest with you. I mean, the fitness level that I had to seriously, I had to make a serious commitment when I was running the sedans. I mean, they were, you had to manhandle a bit, but, you know, we didn't have a lot of downforce. We didn't have a lot of grip, so you really slide the car a lot. But, you know, when you get in a ground effect car that sticks, I mean, you really have got a lot of um, G-force and a lot of energy that, that, you know, it wants to go straight. You've got to turn it, and you've got to shift in the middle of the corners to I mean, it's a whole different dynamic. Unfortunately, I was exposed early enough to that, that that's when I totally changed my fitness program and uh, it started to really work out. Instead of just working out to be overall fit and healthy and strong, I went into a real serious fitness program right down there in Fort Lauderdale, in fact, um, and had a trainer. He came to the track, saw how I sat in the car. We did a lot of arms, a lot of arm stuff, a lot of you know, grip stuff, a lot of leg stuff, a lot of cardio stuff. And, I mean, I just really did a, a very aggressive program. And, and I, without it, it, you're right. I mean, it just wouldn't it wouldn't have happened. I mean, not only maybe the injury part of it, but more importantly, just to, to be at that fitness level. Wow, that's great. All right, so then after that, when did, and when did you start racing Indy cars? Well, I didn't start racing Indy cars until the Indianapolis 500 in 1992. And what most people don't know because I was racing still for Ford in Trans Am and, and in GTO. I mean, I won the GTO class with Sproush, you know, in 87, I think, in 89. And, and But all along, I was, you know, I had the opportunity in 1988 um, to drive an IndyCar for the first time. And I just wanted to drive one to see, if I, you know, what it was like. And, and it, to me, it was the ultimate race car, and I wanted to see what it was like. And Dick Simon gave me that opportunity after bugging him for about three or four years at the track. And uh, at the end of the season, after the Tamiami race, he called me and said, you said you want to drive an IndyCar, be at Memphis tomorrow. And there's a little drag strip there with a little road course around it. And I got to drive an IndyCar for the first time. And and this was about three weeks after I had set records at Talladega in a stock car, the Thunderbird. And quite frankly, when I got in that IndyCar, Dick just let me just turn laps the whole day. I mean, there was nobody hardly there. They were taking a, doing a rookie test with somebody else. And, and, you know, I just, I fell in love. I mean, I absolutely, that car and me, we were like just connected, you know. And, and from that point on, from 1988 on, all I did was continue to try to find the sponsors to raise, you know, a million bucks to be able to go IndyCar racing. Now, did and you, I stayed with my Ford deal and continued racing, but it wasn't until 92 that J.C. Penney, which was the 151st company that I went after for sponsorship over those four years, wow. said yes. And, um, and what most people don't know is the Indianapolis 500 was my first oval track race and only my second op- uh, open wheel race. No kidding. Yep. Well, now, how Big much practice? Big learning curve. I was just going to say, how much practicing did you? I mean, the transition, what's a transition? 
from a you know a GTP car, a Trans Am car, to an open wheel car, and what's and the for, to to back up a second, I've had Bobby Rahal, Dan Gurney, and all the guys, Brian Reb, and, and they've all said, I don't know, they, there's something about an open wheel car. I've never driven an open wheel car, but are you enamored with is is the is the open wheel car the epitome of race cars? It is to me. I mean, it just does everything. You have to make sure that you give the input right. You know where you have to. You, know, you have to really work hard at compensating for, with most race cars what they don't do and you have to make them do. And an Indy car, when it's pretty good set up right, you know, you just think about what you want it to do and you give it the input and it instantly responds. So you've got to be, and, and there's nothing better than that. And so, um, you know, I, I, I don't know, it's hard to explain, but, you well, know, and, and I'm a high speed. I've always liked high-speed tracks, and so, you know, the, the thing that made it unique, and I think it made it happen, and, and it's very hard to, I would never I would never recommend this process, but at the same time, what made it work for me was that, A, I had run, um, I had run like a Talladega, so I had run at least, you know, I'd been around, and I'd run Le Mans, uh, it's a 24 hours of Le Mans, so I, I had done high-speed stuff. Um, I had also done some ground effect stuff because that's what the probe was. I'd done some turbo stuff because that's what the probe was. So I was able to draw on my multiple years of, of experience to kind of pull this a little bit here, a little bit there together. Plus, at Indy, it, at least at that time, you had the whole month of May. And even though we didn't have the kind of budget to run every day, you know, it's not like a typical race where you got practice day, qualifying day, and, and then race day. I mean, you really had time to get to know the track and to get to know everything. And to add on top of that, I was blessed, absolutely blessed, to have my team owner, Dick Simon, be a former driver. And Dick truly, he's the best teacher. You know, a lot of people that can do something well, but that doesn't mean they can teach it. And Dick just had that ability to tell me what I needed to know, when I needed to know it. And it's just the the progress that we made, you know, was just extraordinary because of those circumstances. And quite frankly, I'm a good student. I mean, I was... You know, I paid attention to everything you said, and I buckled down, and it all came out good. <laughs> wow. Now, that's right. You could, uh, uh, to back up a second, you also raced at Daytona. You raced Sebring. You won at Daytona. You won at Sebring, and, how, and, and you also raced at Le Mans. How did, well, that was back when the GTP days. So was that going I raced on? I Le Mans 1989, yeah. Okay, so that's, and that's concurrent with when you were kind of experimenting with IndyCars then, right? Yeah, well, I'd only done, I only got to drive an IndyCar one day at Memphis in 1988. Okay. And then, and then I never got to drive an IndyCar again until Dick took me to Texas about two or three weeks, two weeks, I think, before rookie orientation. Wow. And, and so, you know, there was, I didn't get any practice. Or, I mean, but I also, we knew, and he knew by the way I handled myself at Memphis. He said, I know, I'll never forget it. I got out of the car at the end of the day, and Dick looked at me, and he said, we can do this. And, you know, the word we made made a big difference and he you know he just instilled incredible confidence because he saw how well i progressed that day in that car wow now you raced indy you had seven starts as it at indy at at indy itself but more in indy at indy races i had 15 indy car races so i did run other tracks i never had a full season but um but i had a total of 15 for over the nine-year period and seven indy car indy 500 yep Okay, well, all right, we got a few minutes left. I want to go into something else that you're working on. You, what's, tell us about women in the winner's circle. 
and what that's all about. Now, you've got a program that you're going around the country, and it's for young, besides being a motivational speaker, you've got a program here where you kind of get uh, young women involved in racing. So tell us a little bit about that. Well, I, I don't get them involved. What I oh. do is I take um, the women that, that contact me or I look at race results, and we, have a, we do have an application process. And so for the last 16 years, you know, I got so much fan mail for people asking advice. I said, I just can't send them an autograph, and I don't know anything about them. I don't know how much talent they have, how much money they have, where they are. I don't know anything about them. And so what we did was we created a driver development program that we then brought them to us. And then I thought, you know, you know, you spend your life in any industry or any business or any profession, but particularly in racing, you never know what you need to know and you, until after you probably, you know, after you wish you'd known it. I mean, it, it's too late. And so I thought if I could take all those years of experience that I've developed and learned and also the people that I've learned to trust who helped me, and I could assemble them together to be able to then provide that same valuable golden information to young drivers, then they give them a leg up. And so we've been doing it for 16 years. Um, it's, it's difficult because we have to get all the elements together and we have to bring people to us, which we're now finding, quite frankly, is difficult. Um, everybody's either busy racing or they're going to school or, you know, it, it's very difficult to get people at a right time. And so we're now redesigning our driver development program right now, literally last week. So if somebody wants to contact you and find out more about it, how would they go about doing that, Lynn? Go to my website, and the information's all on there. You just go to the, the foundation, because and, and, I do it as a not-for-profit, because there's no way that I could do it any other way. So what's, fortunately, what's, people like USAC and, and NASCAR and, and you know the sanctioning bodies have been very supportive, and Mazda and Pirelli, and so I've been trying to really reach out to the entire industry, because everybody wins if we get more women they're already racing, if they can get to the winner's circle and they can start to be, you know, really successful, then the fans love it, the sponsors love it, and it makes for the better sport. Okay. we got a minute left. Do you want to get out the name of the uh, the website so people can get that real quick? you want to go ahead and mention that? Yeah, it's just lynnstjames.com. So www.lynnstjames.com. Okay, super. Well, Lynn, I want to thank you for coming on the radio show. It went pretty fast, but I hope you enjoyed you it. We, we enjoyed having you on. Will you uh, come on again sometime? Well, I will. And since you're down as well, I got to tell you, one of my best buds down there is a musician plays um, at some of the at some of the uh, the beachside resorts. His name is Cole Oliver. Where's he at? Which part of the? St- well, he, he moves around at different some different locations on the beach. But if you just see, he's a great musician, and he wrote a song for me called "As Fast as She Can." <laughs> as fast as she can. Okay. Well, we'll keep our eyes open for Cole Oliver. For you Cole said. Cole Oliver. Right? Yep. Okay. Yep. All right. Well, hey, we're just about out of time. So, Lynn, I want to thank you for coming on the show. Everybody else, uh, thanks for tuning in. Our guest this evening was Lynn St. James, okay? So I want to thank everybody for tuning in. Drive carefully. Stay safe. Love you, family. And by the way, Chris just walked in for a few minutes. Uh, Our friend from the Crown Collector Car Auction. Oh, Chris, here. Say hi. Hey, how's everybody out there? Don't forget about CrownCollectorCars.com's auction this October 14th and 15th. We're going to have some of the greatest collector cars on display. And people uh, tell you the phone's ringing off the hook. It's going to be a wonderful job. All right, you guys heard that? Be sure and be there. And yours truly will be there running his mouth as usual. So, hey, everybody, we'll catch you next week. we got another special guest, but it's a big surprise, okay? We're out of here. WTAN, Clearwater, Tampa, St. Petersburg. WDCF, Dade City, Zephyr Hills, and Wesley Chapel. And KLRG, Sheridan, Little Rock, Arkansas.